Hi, this is Craig Tim. Thank you for tuning in. Once again, we're going to hear a message from God on helping us walk the Christian life better and more in tune with Him and to dissipate all the negativity that's around us and all the temptations the devil throws out to us. Every time we meet, he has encouraging words, he has guidance, he has direction, and he shows us his love. And that's what we're all after, to receive the love and to bless him and bless others when we get together. Now, last time when we met, we began a message titled, Then Masking the Everyday Pharisee. And we ended up stopping about halfway through. There was so much on there that I felt God wanted me to share that time just kind of got away and I didn't want to extend it and make it a 40 or 45 minute uh, message. Uh, people tune out, it seems to be in the 20 to 25 range. So really try to keep it into that for everybody who listens in. But just a recap, we talked about uh, a, 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 message, a um, quote here from theologian Carl Rayner that really just stuck with me as, as I was sharing, even just sharing this last time we were together. The number one cause of atheism is Christians, those who proclaim God with their mouths and deny them with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. And talking about the Pharisees back in Jesus' day. Jesus pointed out true identities of them. The first one we all guessed, I believe so, is hypocrisy. And the second one happened to be elitism. Elitism is when you um, use your own paradigms to judge others and think that they should agree with you and live by your standards of how you live. And then the last thing was um, external. Let's see here. Judging by externals. Make sure that I quote all this correctly. And that was the third one. Done for men to see. And Matthew 23, 27 said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bows and everything unclean. And so Christ really, really has a hard time with this, obviously, as many of us seem to do. But the bottom line here is that uh, where this ended up is that the Pharisees, when they first started, they started out to please God. And things kind of got twisted and kind of got, you know, adding a little bit of their own rules in there. And pretty soon, the Pharisees stayed and sent out to try to make God angry. You know, uh, there was a quote, uh, something about waking up and saying, I'm going to make God mad today. They didn't set out to do that. They set out to please him. But it turned out to be that what they ended up becoming, they had made God very, very angry. And part of it is that the Pharisees just seemed to be confused. What did we do wrong that to make God so mad at us? And so that's where we left off. And I want to continue on the, the pointing out a couple of uh, traps that the enemies used to warp the Pharisees' thinking. See, the Pharisees, they saw their rules. Again, they took a lot of this stuff from God that they, you know, were standing in the gap to the Israelites and everything to be that transition time, 
and but they decided to add their rules to a lot of scriptures and they felt that their rules were very important and there's a story about the Pharisees bringing an adulterous woman to Jesus uh, I don't uh, I don't have it right here in front of me um, somewhere in John John 8 I think it is uh, let's see when we get down through my notes here uh, what we're going to be at anyway and brought the but they didn't really care about her that, that that's the thing before we get into quoting the scripture they didn't care they, they just know that one of their rules had been broken and she needed to be exposed they had no intention of stoning her themselves she was just uh, kind of like a prop and in fact they couldn't stone her though that was the problem only rome could do it at that time you see once rome conquered judah judah became a roman territory and under roman law only the Roman governors had the authority to condemn people to death. And we only have to look back at the crucifix crucifixion of Jesus to see that, because that's what it was. You remember the approval the Pharisees and the teachers of the law needed to have Jesus executed? Yeah, remember Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor at the time. They couldn't do it themselves. They had to get him to say and to do it. So when the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus, she was only a prop, like I said, or, or a tool, so to say. She was an object lesson they wanted to get at Jesus. They wanted to trap him, you know, because they really, really hated him. You know, we've read a lot of those stories. In John 8, verses 3 through 5, here it is, I found it. We're told that they, the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Uh, let's move on one more. Verse 6 says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, accusing him of Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were right in their accusation on the woman. The woman had been caught in adultery, and the law decreed that she should die. Every Jewish rabbi would have known that. But like I said earlier, when the Roman Empire conquered Judah, they took the power to execute the wrongdoers away from all the Jewish leaders. In order to punish the sinners, the Jews need to get permission from the Roman governor. So, here's the dilemma now. If Jesus said the woman should be stoned, the Pharisees would have reported him to the Roman authorities and had him arrested for undermining Roman laws. Because only the Romans had the authority to declare a death sentence. But if Jesus said that she couldn't be stoned because of the Roman law, then the Pharisees would have accused him of being an agent of Rome. And we know everybody hated the Romans then, right? And since he was a teacher of God's law, they could have condemned him for ignoring the plain teachings of the law of Moses regarding adultery and stoning. They thought it was a perfect trap. He didn't have any way out. They didn't care anything about the woman. And they really didn't care about Jesus. In their minds, both of them had broken their rules. Remember, their rules. And both needed to be dealt with. When you begin to love rules more than people, you risk becoming a Pharisee. Again, when you begin to love rules more than people, you risk becoming a Pharisee yourself. And I've seen churches where that's happened also. The first thing that tripped up the Pharisees is they love their rules more than they love the people. 
Rules were important. People were not. But you need to understand that these Pharisees saw Jesus as an enemy of their God. Their God was their rules. Their God was on their side, so anyone who opposed them was opposing their God. Now, there was, there was one just a twist here, just pause here. There was an elder in another church and who, 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 was thought, who was thought kind of like this. He loved Jesus, but he developed the opinion that whatever he decided was right, that was, it was supposed to be right. If he saw something as moral or true, well, God agreed with him. God did too. But how did he end up this way? He'd been seriously burned in a fire, and his body was damaged so bad. All the nurses at the hospital, they, they, they never thought that he would recover. They told him no one had ever been burned over that much of their body and survived. But he did. He was saved. He believed God spared him from death so that he could do great things in the church for him, for the Almighty. Yeah, that's a great story. And many really like this elder, but he became a real pain in the you-know-what. He believed that whatever decision he made must be God's decision because, after all, God saved him from a certain death. So God must have wanted his will to prevail amongst his own people. Now, the thing is, though, this can happen to anybody, right? It can happen to a preacher, an elder, deacon, Sunday school teacher, your neighbor, your your uh, uh, Christian friend. I mean, it, it can it can happen to anybody to fall into this. You can end up making Jesus your enemy by substituting your agenda for His, and then if you're not careful, you'll not even know that you've done it. You just what are you guys talking about? That's not what I'm doing. You won't even realize it. But there is one symptom of this dangerous attitude. And it should be like a road sign saying, Don't go there. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. Don't go there. And what is that symptom of becoming like a Pharisee? It's when you get mad. People are not listening to you. Your opinions being ignored. Things aren't going your way at church or at work. Or in the family. So you get really angry. You get really upset that others aren't listening to you. And why not? Your agenda is obviously right. The others have to be wrong. And it just makes you mad. If that happens, people, you pay attention. If you're listening today, if that happens to you, you stop. You must pay attention. It's a sign that you're in danger of becoming like the Pharisees. You're falling into that trap. The first trap that whooped the Pharisee was that their rules were more important. The second trap was that their agenda, in their own minds, of course, their agenda was God's agenda. And the third trap was that the Pharisees believed their sins could be covered up as long as they kept the rules. They felt that keeping enough rules, that would make them, quote, look good even when they were not good. Back to one of those identifying things that Christ said, a hypocrite. But they didn't care. And Jesus condemned them by saying, Whoa to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. 
In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Matthew 23, 27-28 The Pharisees had convinced themselves that if they could look good on the outside, that was as good as being good on the inside. That's what happens to people who become like Pharisees. They fool themselves into thinking that obeying certain rules, that, that, that this can be just as good as being righteous before God. Now, I, I've heard of churches where churchgoers do what a lot of other worshipers do after church. They go out to eat. Sure, go to lunch. We've done it all the time, many of us. Some of us do it on a weekly basis with family or friends or Whatever the case may be. But oftentimes, once these people, they get to the restaurant, they're rude, they're selfish to the waitresses. Now, why do they do that? Well, they've been to church, and the waitress haven't, so they're better than her. They've kept the rules so they can justify being inconsiderate and unchristian. Their rule-keeping offsets their sinfulness, and they feel justified in their actions. You can always find justification in what you're doing. Right or wrong, people will justify what they're doing to make them feel good about it. Now, I've also heard churches where the church people absolutely despise one another. I've even heard of congregations where some of the members sit on one side and the others sit on the other side. They never interact. They refuse to do anything with one another. It's kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys to some degree. How that starts, nobody knows, and it doesn't matter for today's conversation. But guess what they do each Sunday? Guess what they do? They take communion together. They can't stand one another, but they still take communion together. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about this holier-than-thou symptom. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but not have love, I gain nothing. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I can speak with tongues of angels, but have not no love in my heart, what am I? Nothing. If I go to church every Sunday, but don't show love, what am I? Nothing. And if I teach Sunday school, or work in the sound booth, or work in the pantry, or a greeter, but not have love, what am I? Nothing. That's what Paul's trying to get across to us. If you get everything else right, if you have all your Christian ducks in a row, but don't have love for others, you have nothing. You're annoying God. And people try to live by these rules, thinking they can get God's attention by keeping them. But they don't realize that God can hear the rattle of sin that they try to hide doing this. The Pharisees got most of the rules right, but they had no love for others. And that really annoyed God. Here's one, one last point that I want to make here. There are people who hate the concept of Pharisees so badly, they go off the track in the other direction. They hate the morals police idea. It offends them that anyone would take a stand for morality and make them feel uncomfortable in their own sins. Now, usually they get upset when a Christian tries to explain why abortion or homosexuality is wrong. So they'll quote Jesus. They'll say, judge not, lest you be judged. 
or they'll quote Jesus from the passage, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. They're trying to imply that Jesus taught us to never judge sin, that we're never to take a stand against immorality in the world. They hate the idea of moral, morals, please. But if you look back in the Old Testament, that's exactly what the prophets were. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Malachi, they were all telling the people what their sins were and warning to escape the judgment of God. But unlike the Pharisees, the prophets of the Old Testament really took no pleasure in confronting people's sins and declaring God's judgment. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because it hurt him so much to face people with their own sins. Jeremiah and the other prophets, they repeatedly warned Israel of God's coming wrath. But they took no pleasure in doing it. They didn't like it. They were just obeying God's call. They were the speaker for God's voice to the people. By contrast, though, the Pharisees would tell you that you were going to hell. And you could tell they were glad that you were going to. Now, back, back to the woman in our story here. Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Oh, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. John 8, verse 10 and 11. Jesus said, I will not condemn you. Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone. You remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I mean, we see it in football games. We see it in baseball. We see it all the time. That's the go-to verse. But, what does the next verse say? John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We don't, we don't hear that one. We don't see that one quoted. He didn't send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to condemn it. He sent, them, he sent him there to save us through him. He came to stand in the gap, to take place on the cross, to die and pay the price of with his blood because our sins had already condemned us. Well, we, couldn't, we couldn't recover. We were, we were doomed from then. There was a rule. A sinful must die. We had sinned and someone had to die for it. And so Jesus died on our place. He took our place for our sins so that we could be saved. But it's the oddest thing about this story. It seems to be the only place in the Gospels where Jesus did not tell someone their sins were forgiven. If you notice in the scripture, he didn't say they were forgiven. Usually he would say something like, go in peace, your sins are forgiven. Uh, some paraphrase like that. But not in this example. This time he tells the woman, leave your life of sin. She had not come to him for forgiveness. She was dragged there against her will. She didn't want anything to do with him. In her heart, she was still an adulteress. And she was still going to go to hell. Leave your life of sin. Repent of what you have been doing and stop doing it. Because the day will come when Jesus will come again. And he will condemn all who lives of sin. I'm getting ready to close, but here's the deal. We're called to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Yes. That means that we must die to our sins. That's what Romans 6 points out. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. No, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death too. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And unless we come to Jesus wanting to die to our past, we can't be forgiven. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Without your repentance, there is no forgiveness. That doesn't mean you're going to go sin anymore. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin anymore. We are not perfect. We continually do those things. But the closer you walk with God, the less you're going to sin. And that will happen because you've made up your mind to die to sin, to not let it rule over your life anymore. And it will happen because you set your heart toward God and you've turned away from your past. You are looking to the future. You are looking for tomorrow. What God has for you for tomorrow. That's what we're looking for. Can't look in the rearview mirror. Can't change anything from yesterday. But we can change everything for tomorrow. That is our message. Unmasking the everyday Pharisee. Where are you? Are you an everyday Pharisee? Are you a modern day Pharisee? Whatever phrase you want to use. An everyday Pharisee. No, we don't want to be that. Your agenda is not always right. Most of the time our our own agenda is wrong. Most of the time we make an agenda. God doesn't want an agenda. He just wants obedience. He wants us to want to be with him. That's what he wants from us. I hope this message has impacted you the way it's impacted me as he's given me, given me this to share with you all. It, it is an enlightening message and a very thought-provoking. What am I doing? Why do I do that? What happened here? We all fall into the enemy's traps. He just tweaks things enough to trick us and we fall into that. And once we fall... It's hard to get out. Lord, take this message that you've given us now in these two parts. Take this message and impact it. Implant it in our heart and make it impactful so that we can strive to not be like the Pharisees of yesterday. We don't want to be a modern day Pharisee. The Pharisees were after their own rules. They tweaked everything. It's their agenda. What they did, what they said, that's what they told everybody that God wanted them to be and God to do. Lord, just help us to break away from that, to follow your path, to follow your light, and to seek after you every day in all that we do. To be, as as in the first part, ambassador when we're out there we are an ambassador of jesus christ let's show everybody what that is blessing to you thank you for listening again i pray that this has impacted you the way it has impacted me amen